0: Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show's Icon Series. I am Louise Solis, and typically, I am your host. But in this limited series, I'm handing over the reins to historian John Taylor Chapman as he takes us on a journey through history. So sit back, grab a cocktail, and enjoy.
1: Yes, I'm your host, John Taylor Chapman, and indeed, I'm going to take you on a trip through time to explore African and African-American cultural heritage, history, and legacy. This is no ordinary history class, not even close. Each week I will be joined by some highly respected historians and amazing storytellers, so I promise you this, our conversations will be lively and empowering. So let's get started, shall we? In 2013 and 14, Alexandria, Virginia was crowned the nation's most well-read city, home to over, at that time, 100,000 people from various ethnicities and backgrounds, it has a number of public libraries and bookstores where residents can feed their need to read. But this particular title of Most Royal Red City is a bit ironic considering its history and the fight it's had for access of books. Today, we're going to discuss the 1939 Alexandria Library sit-in with none other than the first African-American director of Alexandria's libraries, Ms. Rose Dawson. Welcome to the show, Rose.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: So Rose, I definitely want to get into the 1939 sit-in, but first, please tell listeners a little bit about yourself and what brought you to Alexandria.
2: Okay, Um, so in 2005, I interviewed for the deputy director position in Alexandria and was fortunate enough to be given that position. And so I consequently was the first African-American deputy director. Um, At that particular time, I was introduced to the story of the Library in, believe it or not. Um, my background was youth services and children's work. And um, I personally do a lot with genealogy. And so I came to the city. I was doing visits to the branches. And my special collections branch, I had this wonderful um, staff member. And he pulls me aside and he says, oh, you're gonna love this because you do know we were the first library system to have a sit-in. And I said, really, when did this happen? And he said, 1939. Now, John, I pride myself on the African-American history I know. And so I I said, excuse me, because I really thought I misheard him or he had messed up somehow on the date, Um, but he hadn't. And after that, I was off to the races in researching this information because I'd been in the profession for a minute. And so I kind of felt like, how is it that I don't know this particular story? So I took time to learn it. And then fast forward three years later, when I find myself as the first uh, director of the library, then it just felt natural to make this my personal story because I couldn't have the job that I have. Um, without the efforts that those gentlemen had made.
1: That's right. That's right. So let's tell our listeners that story.
2: All right. So in we're going to go a little further back. So in 1937, Alexandria gets its first public library. Um, It is a gift because you have Dr. Robert Barrett, who wants to honor his mother, Dr. Kate Waller Barrett, who was a woman ahead of her time. And he says he'll give them the money to build a public library uh, if they name it after his mom. So Alexandria has always enjoyed reading. And so its citizenry, had a, they had a subscription library. And that subscription library had been in existence since 1794. And what had happened over the years was it had been it's embedded in the fabric of this city. It's been housed in the Lyceum. It's been housed in the City Hall. Uh, um, you know the uh, it, it's been in the old firehouse. It's just been all over the place. But by the '30s. It has no place to go. So that organization, the Alexandria Library Company, are looking for a home for that collection. You have Dr. Robert Barrett, who's looking to build a library for um, the residents, as long as you name it after his mother. And then they needed a place to build the, the, the facility. And then they need the city's buy-in. They need the city to decide that, yes, um, they will continue to fund it. So a perfect storm happens. Everybody gets in line and gets behind this effort. The Society of Friends, the Quakers, they donate um, a former burial ground. So yes, Mm -hmm. the Kate Waller Barrett Library is indeed on uh, a burial ground. There are graves under there. And then you find that the city has agreed to giving the um, library $5,000 a year to run it. Mm -hmm. So you fast forward because technically, everybody's tax dollars are paying for this facility. Mm -hmm. So in theory, everybody should be allowed to use it. Unfortunately, we know that in the 30s, based on this being Virginia and the laws of that time, it's a Jim Crow era, then African-Americans were not allowed to use that collection. And so in steps Sam Tucker. Sam Tucker is this young attorney in Alexandria. He's African-American, he's about 26 years old, um, really, really smart, and he's trying to figure out a way to challenge some of the unfair laws. And the first thing he does is he decides to put, using the library to the test, by doing the formal route of sending things through the courts. So he has Sergeant Wilson, An Army vet, African-American, who is willing to allow Tucker to use his name to try and use the Barrett Library to get a library card. And so Tucker and um, Sergeant Wilson make a visit to the Barrett Library. Of course, they're told they cannot get a card and everything. And and from that experience, Tucker files with the courts on behalf of Sergeant Wilson Mm. um, the right to get the card. Now... As that is working its way through the courts and there are delays going on, then Tucker decides that he's going to organize a sit-in. One of the things that he's familiar with is that he had read up on during that time is the car industry. Mm -hmm. They did a sit-down strike during that time and it was successful. And Tucker, he is, he's read the information about Gandhi, but because he's also familiar with this story about the sit-down strike, decides to try and put that into action here in Alexandria. So he recruits about, oh, maybe 10 to 12 young African-American men, and they spend a couple of weeks practicing um, what a nonviolent protest would be like, this protest of civil disobedience, mm-hmm. Um, because the law does indeed say that they are not entitled to use the facility. So what happens is they settle on the date of August the 21st in 1939. And he has on that morning out of the 10 to 12, about approximately five of the young men show up who actually went through the, the practice Um, the the training. Mm -hmm. And one of them brings his younger brother, who's about 14. So you've got Buddy Evans. You have Otto Tucker, who is Sam Tucker's brother. You have Edward Gaddis. You have Morris Murray. And you have Clarence Strange, whose nickname is Buck. And Clarence brings his baby brother, Bobby, with him, who's about 14. And so... What they trained on was that first of all, they had to make a, a good impression. They needed to come well-dressed. So all of them were dressed. They they had on nice um, clothing. They knew that when they went in that they needed to be polite and well-spoken, that they needed to uh, make sure that there was no other reason for the f- people to call the police on them. So what happens is individually, these guys go in one by one, They go up to the desk, they ask the librarian for a library card. She tells them as they expect her to, I'm sorry, you can't have one and you will have to leave. And they each ask, what will happen if I don't? Mm. They walk over to a shelf, they pull a book off the shelf, they go over to separate tables and they sit down. Now imagine, this happens one time you know, you're a little surprised by it. Yeah. librarian's a little surprised. And then right after that happens, here comes another one. And then here comes another <laughs> one. And you've got to think about it, while this is going on, outside, a, a crowd's starting to form because mm-hmm. people are saying, oh my gosh, these, you know, colored guys, as they were called at mm-hmm. that time, have gone into the library. And what in the world is going on? Because they're not coming back out. Mm -hmm. So at that time, they have the library staff, they're thrown for a loop. The few people who are in the library are looking to see, well, what are you guys going to do? (laughs) By this point, you've got five young, well-dressed men, African-American though, and they are sitting at individual tables and they're reading. So they have a runner go over to... Ms. Scoggins is the librarian. They they go to her house to inform her that they have these gentlemen sitting in the library. She then goes over to City Hall to let the city manager know, we've got an issue going on at the library and how should we handle it? Now, at the same time, Tucker is over in his offices, which are around the corner from the Queen Street Library. And he has... Bobby Strange, the 14-year-old, is his lookout. He's his eyes and ears. And so Bobby Strange keeps running back and forth reporting what's going on in the library for Tucker. Mm -hmm. So it takes the city a minute to figure out what they're gonna do about this situation they have going on. Actually, a couple of hours pass. And like I said, by this time, they have a crowd. It's estimated to be over 200 people are outside wow. looking and waiting to see what's going to happen. And Justice Tucker had trained the young men that they were going to be arrested, that's exactly what takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, the city manager, uh, Carl Budwetsky, decides that they are going to arrest the men. And so they send the police over Two young officers go in, they speak to the, the guys in the um, library, they get up and they come out. By this time, Bobby has informed Tucker that they are going to arrest them and they're going to be coming out. And Tucker comes from his office from around the corner and he has a photographer with him, mm-hmm. and they take the iconic picture of the gentleman walking out of the library, um, accompanied by one of the officers, Officer Kelly. Mm.
1: Wow.
2: It's fabulous, it's just fabulous, and to know that on the front lines of the whole um, issue of segregation, that we tended to learn in school that most things didn't happen until the 60s.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: And then they also talk about how the fact is they didn't, um, it was primarily restrooms, the freedom riders. That's right. I mean, so to hear that there was a community who recognized the value of reading as early as the 30s is a story that is just so impressive and one that, needs to be told. And so I have made it a personal goal to make sure that that word gets out far and wide. And so this is why I love sharing the story of the 1939 Library City.
1: Well, thank you. It is always good to hear that story. Um, I think one of the, you know, one of the things that I have really enjoyed, not only about the story itself, but you know the way that you have kind of brought the energy and brought the energy to our libraries. Um, back in 2018, we celebrated the 80th anniversary um, of the sit-in, and that was just a tremendous event um, for people that just just were learning the story, or for people that had already heard the story. Yes. Yeah. Um, in particular, you had a panel of. Uh, descendants of, of those five men yes. come and speak about what they saw or what they heard of from their view in terms of kind of the, the family story, you know, because that doesn't always get told as well, right? Ah. Um, and so that was just a powerful event. Um, for you, what were your some of your takeaways from the, the event itself and even the panel and kind of what was, what was heard and discussed?
2: So One of the things, so the library, like I said, I came in 2005 and I became the director in 2009. Mm -hmm. So we we celebrated the 70th anniversary of that event then. The fact of the matter though was we didn't really organize it very well. So thanks to our good friends at the Black History Museum, Audrey Davis and company, then we were the location because they would celebrate it, but it had never been hosted at the Barrett Library. Mm, So for that particular event, we had a nice standing room only crowd inside of the Barrett Library, but unfortunately we failed to get the contact information from a lot of those family members. So when you fast forward to our 75th anniversary in which we were determined to make sure that the word got out, we closed off the street in front of the Barrett Library. So Queen Street was closed off. We partnered with other, our sister city agencies. Mm -hmm. We had nonprofits, they had tables outside. We had a band. I mean, we had vending trucks, uh, the the food trucks. (laughs) We had it going on. You couldn't tell us anything. (laughs) We had a lot of media coverage Thanks. for that as well. Um, we had two keynote speakers at the time, mm. um, Dr. Frank Smith, who's mm-hmm. the executive director for the African-American Civil War, War Museum mm-hmm. in D.C. We had uh, uh, Justice the Honorable Patricia Timmons Goodson. Mm-hmm. She had just right. been appointed to the Civil Rights Commission by um, past President uh, Obama. And so it was a really wonderful um, event for us at that time. However, we recognize that we failed to incorporate the feedback and input from the families. So our 80th celebration focused on getting the family members to participate. And what's interesting, John, and, and you may have experienced some of this when you've done some of your research, is that when trying to talk with older um, people in the community, our elders,
1: mm-hmm.
2: sometimes they don't think we should go there.
1: Yes. Yep.
2: Um, I had a couple of older women tell me, baby, you need to leave those people alone. Mm. And I wanted them to know, but I can't because, you know, I'm the first person of color to have this position. And I couldn't have this position if the, what they did Um, hadn't taken place, and I really need to to recognize that and and honor and and make sure that others are aware that things didn't just start happening, you know, in the 20th century. So getting buy-in from others within the the community, within the African-American as well as um, other communities, um, has always been interesting. Mm-hmm. And so when we were trying to make sure that the community understood the reason why we needed to celebrate this, was fortunate enough to get our honorary co-chairs for the 75th anniversary. And that was um, former, the late Patsy Tyser
1: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. and the late Ferdinand Day. And so those two felt very strongly about the efforts we were doing so that it wasn't just black history. This was Alexandria history. And I could appreciate that my staff had felt uncomfortable because we were on the wrong side Mm. of history. But that's okay. You acknowledge it, you apologize for it, and then you move on. And so when we did the 80th, We needed to get the voice of the families um, front and center. It was no longer about us doing it. We told the story. People were aware of it, and we needed to personalize it a little more. So when we did the descendants panel, um, Buddy Evans' family is still in the area, and there are quite a few of them, and they were willing to participate. We were successful in getting Morris Murray's nephew and he was willing to participate. We are still in the process of trying to get additional family members um, from say like Edward Gaddis. Mm -hmm. But the night of that event, we were fortunate enough that people from Clarence and Bobby Stranger's family had heard about the event and they showed up. So we now have contact information with them. And of course we did have contact information for Sam Tucker's um, niece, And one of the beauties about that particular event and having them sit there and share their information was the fact that my sister agencies, um, such as the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, Mm -hmm. was aware of what we were trying to do. The fact that you all, the city council and the mayor, you all were aware of what we were trying to do. And so individuals from those two places, so Mayor Justin Wilson, Uh, Brian Porter, the Commonwealth attorney, they contacted me and said, do you know whatever really happened? And because the media tells it both ways. Mm -hmm. The media, you do see in some stories that the charges were dismissed. We found that in one newspaper article. But most of the articles just state that the story was dragged, the the court case, they dragged it on and on and on, and then nothing ever happened with it. And we needed to try to verify what indeed did happen. So when you go back to look for, um, you know, the librarian in me, we're looking, oh, yeah. we're, we're looking for the documents. That's
1: right. We're looking for
2: the documents. So the first stop was to the courts mm-hmm. to see what the court case information was. Right. Well, because of the um, the way that you are able to get rid of information, um, you know, mm-hmm. after so many years, yep. you don't keep it. That's and so there was no paperwork within the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed Simonian tried to help us in that regard okay. to find things. We went to the police department to see if we could find the arrest records or information in that yeah. regard. We still have been unsuccessful in finding information in that regard. So we really had to rely on what family members recalled. Mm-hmm. And so, in asking one of them, um, Morris Murray's nephew, I, you know, because you don't want to lead them into, you know, I really want to know. Right. Uh, can you tell me? It'd be nice if they never dismissed the charges. (laughs) But, you know, you you lead with the, um, you know, did your uncle ever say anything about this, any regrets or or anything along those lines? And he said, my uncle said, and Morris Murray had a very wonderful career after Mm -hmm. this military intelligence, you know, in the military and all of that. He said, my uncle said, if there was one thing he could change, it would be, to get those bogus charges dismissed, and that's all we needed. Mm. And so sharing that with the Commonwealth attorney, Mm -hmm. then we were able to get the charges dismissed, and that was just major for us. Wow,
1: yeah. I just, I mean, I just recall that event um, myself and and sitting here and hearing those stories, having heard of the sit-in and knowing kind of the, the details, but to hear it from relatives of those individuals and kind Absolutely. of the effect that um, each of the men went through and kind of how their life, you know, went upwards, downward, to the side after that. Um, and kind of, that that was just it was, interesting to hear. It was.
2: And more importantly, John, was the fact that just like those um, elders told me, baby, you need to leave that stuff mm-hmm. alone, in talking to like Buddy Evans' granddaughter. That's
1: right. That's right. Then yes. she
2: was saying he never talked about That's it right. mm-hmm. in front of them. She remembers when she found out about it, there had been an article, newspaper article, mm-hmm. I guess, in the 90s. Yeah. And she saw it and she asked her mother, Why is my brother dressed in those old-time clothes? (laughs) Because it's true. Her brother looks just like Mm -hmm. his grandfather. And that was when she heard more about the story. But to have Buddy Evans' daughter,
1: Mm -hmm. uh, his
2: daughter Angie, talk about um, what she recalled, um, the few things he would say and everything. But yes, to make sure that those stories um, are there, you've got primary resources, but then you've got these secondary oral histories that need to be kept and maintained. And so um, we're just ecstatic that we were able to bring them together and we wanna build on that um, in future years.
1: Okay, well, thank you. I mean, this is, again, just the the story itself and, and how you've been able to crystallize that in the minds of people in Alexandria, across the region, frankly, across the nation, um, and really bring this story out um, of the shadows has been tremendous. Um, you know, how do you think your your work now kind of adds to this idea of um, access to to information, access to books? You know, how how are how is Alexandria's library kind of pushing that that theme forward?
2: You know. It is, if people think about it, it's a classic equity story. Mm. And who would have thought about it, 1939. But if you think about it, all they wanted was access to a book.
1: That's right.
2: Um, When we did some interviews of former staff, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly the first African-American who was hired um, Mm. by Alexandria, who lived in Alexandria. Okay. That was Gladys Davis, and she worked for the library for over 60 years. Can you imagine? Can wow. you imagine? Oh. She worked for a library for over 60 oh. years. But in interviewing her, so she was those gentlemen were her peers. Okay. So she was around, she remembered them. Wow. But when at, they so the rest of the story is that mm-hmm. Tucker, of course, um, they, it goes through the courts. They decide to sort of drag it out. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen. Tucker gets ill. Mm-hmm. And while he's ill, the city goes to additional, um, some other folks in the African-American community. And those individuals decide that they will negotiate and they're willing to accept um, a colored library. Mm. And that's how the Robinson uh, Library gets built. And for those of us who are in the, in Alexandria, we know that the Robinson Library is now
1: the Black History Museum. Black
2: History Museum. So the thing of it is, though, that one of the things in talking to Miss Davis, she shares how she would have responsibility for if they didn't have a book in the colored library which they tended not to have and someone needed it if students needed it she would walk over to the barrett library mm-hmm. and at the, through the back door she'd be given the books and they made and and they made it clear to her gladys you're responsible for this and you need to bring it back in the same condition that it left so miss davis shares that She would take the books back over to the Robinson Library, Mm -hmm. and she would make sure so the kids could use the books there in the the facility. There was none of this, checking it out, interlibrary loan. no, 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 no. no. So that's one of the things, if you think about Mm. this, this is a classic equity story. And so in order for folks to be able to do things um, as we went through the pandemic, it went from just books to technology. Mm -hmm. Lots of people did not have high-speed internet or Mm -hmm. access. And so as the kids are trying to do the work at home, you've got, Two parents, two kids, you've got four people in there trying to work off of a hot spot if you don't have the high speed. Right. And it trying to handle all of those is, is a real challenge. And so this is why people need to recognize, especially, especially um, folks who are leaders and, and making decisions, that there are always going to be folks who need access to things um mm. if they're to do better in life and and we need to make sure the public library is the ideal place to make that happen to level the playing field
1: all right wow um you know I've heard the story a couple of times um but I will say every time I hear you 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 tell it and even today with with the detail that you've laid out some of that stuff I did not <laughs> Did't even know um, but that story is, is so inspiring and if I might say you know what you've done with the story and how you've promoted it is really inspiring in the telling of history um, if if I had to to ask you what do you think listeners to this podcast should take away from either the the story of the story itself or how we've and you how you and, and the Alexandria library company have have brought this story out and, and taken it to the community celebrated it um, and, and as you as you laid out the the different um anniversaries mm-hmm. talked about how you continue to try to celebrate it in different ways. Absolutely. Um, recognizing what you, the successes of that and mm-hmm. the failures of that. Mm-hmm. How do you think we, as, as listeners, take some of these stories, um, and what should we do with them?
2: And, you know, Alexandria isn't that much different from any other community. That's right. And so I've challenged my colleagues to recognize and to ask them do you know when your library integrated? Do Mm. you know when you allowed people of color to use your facilities? Now, I have a number of folks who said, oh, well, we never were segregated. People were always welcome to use our library. And I said, you may think that. But even if that was true, you have to understand that because there was a higher law in place, that trust me, African-Americans did not feel comfortable Mm. taking that risk or that chance in using your facilities. And so this is something that I would like because it's a part of our history. And oftentimes history is, it is based on who tells it.
1: Mm. Yes it is. And so
2: you need to make sure that everybody's voice is represented right. in the telling of history. Not that it necessarily alters it. Um, you know, the Civil War and its results aren't going to change. <laughs> <laughs> and we celebrated. Look, we had the Sesquicentennial. <laughs> right. We had, so, and, and we're getting ready to celebrate it again. If we are okay. it's coming up. And so, the it's not going to necessarily change. Mm-hmm. But there are perspectives and there are voices that need to be included. Mm -hmm. And so I just want that with the average library, because when they were created, they were not created for all. I would like for folks to take into account. In Virginia and in the South, it's African-Americans. But out in the Midwest and everything, it may be Native Americans. Mm, Over in California, it may be Asian-Americans. And so it's Mm -hmm. important for folks to recognize that this type of story is bigger than just the Alexandria Library and our little sit-in. But we would like to be able to lead the way as far as people recognizing what they can do and how they can celebrate it.
1: Wow. Well, folks, um, again, it has been an honor to have Miss Rose Dawson here um, to tell history Uh, and tell what we can do with it. Um, Thank you very, very much for being here and
0: telling this story. You know it's my pleasure.
1: (laughs) Thank you, thank you.
0: And speaking of historic Alexandria, we are here in the heart of Old Town Alexandria, King's Ransom. Old Town's best spot to talk history and enjoy handcrafted cocktails. And fortunately for us on this episode, owner and master barkeep John Schott crafted a delicious smoked old fashion. So to find this recipe and some of John's expert tips and tricks, or to find out how you can join one of John Chapman's Manumission Black History Guided Walking Tours, head over to designateddrinker.show. That's designateddrinker.show. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That!, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers, Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.